0: to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Bullock, People, organizations, and communities need to prepare for and respond to natural and man-made disasters in a timely manner and in the most effective way possible. Our program examines what is being done before, during, and after a disaster and those unexpected events to keep you in the know. Disasters can happen to anyone. The question is, when will it happen to you? Now, here is your host, business continuity and disaster planning expert, Alex Fullick.
1: Welcome to another episode of Preparing for the Unexpected. I'm your host, Alex Fullick, and as always, we like to talk about things related to disaster recovery, business continuity, COVID, resiliency, crisis management, anything that helps you, your organization, or your community prepare for respond to and overcome adverse situations. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, please feel free, reach out. You can find me on LinkedIn. I'm the only Alex Fulick there. So I'm really easy to find and I respond to everything I get. Today, uh, I have a uh, an, an esteemed colleague who is the chairman of the board for the Disaster Recovery Institute International and the DRI uh, Foundation president. So I'd like to welcome to the show today, Mr. Alan Berman. Al, welcome to the show. Always nice to be with you, Alex. How are you doing? I'm doing great. And Good for right. anyone who might not know, this is your second appearance on the show. Do I get a bonus? <laughs> no, you got to get to about 10 or 12 or something. Actually. Yeah, I'm not going to make it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, the last the last time you were on, I think you just became the uh, DRA president, if I recall, because we met at the... Continuity and Resilience Today conference, what, in 2019, was it?
2: 2019. Yeah, I became chairman of the board in 2019, I think. I had been president of DRI for about nine years before I quote-unquote retired. didn't quite work out the way Mm.
1: I had planned it, but... (laughs) Obviously not. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's a lucky thing, you know, organizations had you uh, stick around considering, you know, COVID and everything. It's uh, good that you didn't fully retire and disappear. So we have a few things we're going to uh, touch on today. The first one, we're going to talk about cybersecurity and privacy. So the first thing I want to ask you is uh, what are some of the key considerations organizations need to focus on immediately, considering the rise in cyber incidents uh, like ransomware and other crimes that are out there? What do they need to do right away?
2: Yeah, I I think there are lots of things that we need to do and, and to talk to do a whole series about what organizations are facing and what they should do as individuals and then what corporations should do. And the two are are vastly separated. Um, Cybersecurity is is different than anything else we've ever seen from the point of view is if you look at the latest IBM Poneman's survey, the average time to discover a cyber incident is 192 days. So think of a fire burning for six months and nobody's seeing it. So our, wow. the, when people talk about it, it's their response, it's totally different. Um, so there's much more of a, of a proactive approach to it. And when you look at, I think the last time I saw this is there were 50 billion as we sit today, 50 billion devices that are network connected. Over the next decade, that number is probably going to triple as we see more Internet of Things type devices, um, Apple, Apple Watches, um, remote cameras, medical devices, automotive computers. And Bridget. so we're facing an uphill battle over what we've got. And so we started to look at how do we address some of these issues? Um, and we started with how to people at home, the average person who uh, who's sitting at home now working from home, uh, using their home computer, uh, what are they supposed to be doing? And, and we can talk about you know, the fact that ransomware has become this, the, big, the big business that it's become. Um, when I ransomware started, just to give us you know, some perspective about it, the average ransomware was about $55,000. And all of a sudden, we've started to see that number climb. And if you look at um, Colonial Pipeline, three years after much of what we saw as ransomware, the price went from $55,000 to $5 million. Um, about three months ago, CNA, CNA Financial reportedly paid $40 million in Bitcoins. So this has become a huge business, and and when you start to look at it as business as anecdotal, um, you know we've we've seen infrastructure as a service and systems as a service and disaster recovery as a service. Well, ransomware was being used as a service. Um, there was a a, a cyber uh, intruder whose 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 name was Grand Crab. and what he did is he invented some uh, software that ransomware people could use to hunt down through the networks to find vulnerabilities. And Grant Grab had a great business model. He would rent out the software and collect a piece of the money that was retrieved by the cyber intruders. They collected about $2 billion in about 425,000 attacks. Uh, His cut of that was $150 million in profits and... He took the money and disappeared and nobody has heard from him since. So uh, ransomware is a reality. Um, when people talk about attacks, I am particularly thankful for ransomware because ransomware is the only time you actually know that the intrusion has taken place. When you take a look at all the other things, it takes months and months and months. Um, example of that is when Marriott took over Starwoods Uh, They found out that Starwoods was hacked three years ago, and nobody knew. So it's all good and well to scare people about what's happening, but it's also important for us to start to take some proactive measures to at least try to secure um, the networks we have and the the devices that are connected to those networks. So there's some really easy stuff to do. Um, One of the easiest things is for the software to be up to date. We find out that people are reluctant to use it. Um, they've had problems with keeping things up to date, and so we want them to make sure that they really do keep their software up to date. Um, it's easy enough to do,
1: but if what, you look what, at the, what kind of software in particular, they, the applications operating operating you, systems. So, so any we're talking any and all. Yeah, you're talking iOS,
2: for example. Okay. I mean, if if you've got an Apple device. Um, you're going to find that it gets updated every three or four months. And almost all of it is security. So if you look at some of the past um, activities and some of the big hacks were WannaCry and NotPetya, those were in old systems. I mean, even going back to Vista, which is 2017. Oh, yeah. I mean, so you start to look at the fact we don't do that. Old equipment, I mean, we have routers. I mean, now that we've been to wireless networks, we have all of these routers that are actually out of date. Um, about two years ago, the FBI was telling people to reboot their routers every day because they couldn't find a different way to do it. Uh, one of the questions that people ask me all the time is, how do I know if my router is out of date? The fact you ask me that question means your router is out of date. <coughs> Replace it. I replace mine every two or three years uh, simply because it just gives me more security. The other thing is creation of passwords. Um, Don't use the default password. You look at Equifax, who had a big hack about two years ago. Mm -hmm. When um, most systems are brought in, the password uh, is admin and, and the ID is admin. And sure enough, that's one of the ways it was hacked. I shouldn't complain a lot about Equifax because when I complained about it last time, I lost 20 points on my score. So (laughs) Uh, true story. And it was a true story because there was an issue with Equifax where the CFO and two of his direct reports sold their stock, reportedly sold their stock three days before they announced it. And so when we brought that to the attention of people, it it, did cause somewhat of a kerfuffle, a great word. The other thing is passwords, um, you know, ABC123, Star Wars. We're getting more and more uh, complex passwords, but I think one of the great stories um, was Kanye West was at the White House and he was visiting uh, President Trump and he turned on his phone to look at his messages and entered his password and the cameraman was standing over his shoulder and his password was zero 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 zero. So, We're asking people at least to make them more complex. Um, Double identity is is a pain in the neck, and you've got to get a code from your phone, but believe me, it's far more secure. Um, I get probably two a week where somebody has tried to access my account, and I've gotten the code on my phone, and so I really feel it's a much better protection. Well, now that we've gotten through the easy stuff, uh, let's give you some things that are a little more difficult. Uh, One of the things is if people are going to come over to your uh, home uh, and use your network, have them use the guest network. Almost all routers now have a guest network. It will keep them segregated from the network that you connect to your office. It'll give you a lot more protection. The other thing is that devices that do plug-and-play automatically connecting to your network. You should avoid those. Uh, There's absolutely no security. And don't assume that no one will... Can you give an example of those kind
1: of devices for people?
2: Yeah, a lot of games. A lot of games are plug and play. So if you pl- plug it into your device, um, they will automatically start. Some of them sit on USB device drives. So mm-hmm. you want everything to make sure that you sign on to, the, to something and provide some kind of security. Uh, we saw that in the early days um, when... We have lots of plug-and-play devices, so your PS2 and your PS3 type things. Um, Just remember all of those games are connected to your network. Anything that is, is probably running in your house runs on that network. We could talk about even some things that you're not aware of. So, for example, if you start to look at home appliances, smart refrigerators, smart TVs, all of those are listening into everything you do. Um, you know, the fact that you now have voice command for your TV means it's always listening. Alexa is always listening. Um, so all of those devices connected to your network can be hacked. In fact, it, it's not unusual for people to find out that they've been hacked through their TV. Um, most of us don't shut off that that ability to do it. Um, Google Home had the problem with the devices where. Um, conversations were being recorded even before they sent out a command. So just remember the device is always listening for you to say Alexa and hence can be recording everything. Um, refrigerators TV, almost any device is capable of sending out messages. So Samsung's refrigerator, when it first came out, um, people hacked into it and performed um, Message sending, of seen messages out. Just remember, it's a computer. Everything that sits in those things are computers. Even vending machines have been hacked so that they will send out messages and take down systems. So we've really got to be careful about what we connect to our network. Um, but to finish up, you know, we have a lot of old equipment. We should start to make sure they're up to date. If not, make sure the software is, it, is there. Um, we should be able to start to look at devices that connect to the network, but we, don't, we think for some reason really are harmless, and almost none of them are. Um, we've seen HVAC systems hacked so that they shut them off in the middle of winter and there's no heat or there's no air conditioning. So I think we have to be vigilant about the fact that anything connects to the, anything that does connect to the network um, can be hacked. Uh, even poor Bobby, who uh, Mattel came out with a Bobby that had artificial intelligence, um, that some hackers got to it and taught Bobby a new language, so the conversations with children were really X-rated. But just remember, they're all computers, and they all have this ability f- to give people access to the network. And the simpler the device, the easier it is to hack. Um, We talk about the uh, Internet of Things, refrigerators, watches, um, air conditioning systems, uh, medical devices. All of those devices are easily hacked and can cause great damage. Um, Hospitals are becoming much more wary of the fact since University of Alabama, for example, uh, hacked the system and showed that they could actually increase the pace in pacemakers to the point where they could actually kill the person who is using them. And so, you know, being an old James Bond fan, you start to look at those things that you can do without being in the room for people. Mm-hmm. But I, I think that that we've started to, and now that we're home, we've seen this huge increase in security breaches emanating from home. Same computer that you use to run financial uh, programs from your computer. <laughs> So much for those things that you can do in a home environment. But I think the issue that's facing most organizations is what do they do for cyber resilience? What do they do to ensure that they have a process in place that will be able to protect them from events and then they be able to react to those events that took place. And what we're seeing is the integration of cybersecurity and cyber resilience into business continuity. The National Institute for Science and Technology in 2019 came out with what they considered to be a cybersecurity framework. It turns out that the framework is much more about cyber resilience, because if you look at cybersecurity and how it relates to cyber resilience, it relates the same way as risk management relates to business continuity. So cybersecurity and risk management are all about preventing an event from occurring being proactive. Business continuity and cyber cyber resilience are all about reducing the impacts when an event occurs. We know we can't prevent them all, so we have to have a strategy that mitigates against the consequences of an act. So if you look at cybersecurity and risk management, they tend to be proactive and try to prevent things from occurring. If you look at what we think is going to be a cyber resilience model, it looks like business continuity. It tries to reduce the impact. And so when we look at it, the five elements look pretty much the same. One is to prepare and identify, the other is to protect, the third one is to detect when an event happens, and then to respond and then to recover. Um, the first two pieces of identifying and protect really fall into cybersecurity the preventive piece. The detection falls into this very neutral area because typically cybersecurity people don't find out that they've been hacked. You know, we go back to that model of 196 days it takes to identify that an event took place. It usually is identified by somebody outside of, of the cybersecurity realm. Um, so we'll start to look at how we deal with the challenges of trying to prevent and then trying to react once something happens and to limit the damage. And so we built all these information security systems uh, to secure the information, to protect confidentiality, integrity, and the availability of data, and try to offer an entity-wide protection. So it's proactive things that you think about, antivirus, scan scans, network protection, firewalls, active monitoring, the whole list of things we do to try to deter people from breaking into our system. But what we also know is it happens. And so this detection piece that we talk about falling into the middle is where cybersecurity ends because the incident has already taken place. And then the cyber resilience piece, this piece about responding and recovery takes place. And so the the emphasis of a lot of organizations as we look through things like operational resilience and the integration of um, proactive measures and reactive measures is to try to integrate those things so that we can come up with a response that limits the damage. And cyber is clearly the one, nobody evacuates, nobody shelters in place. Most people don't know the incident took place. So all of those things that we're used to talking about, like incident management, don't really take place. And so we start to incorporate comprehensive cyber incident response management. What do the cyber people do? Uh, now that they've learned this lesson and try to be more productive, and what do the business continuity people do? Mm-hmm. And, and so the idea of this respond recovery, if you look at business continuity as being event neutral, It only cares about effects. It doesn't care what the incident was. Uh, I was with a research firm uh, before I started in banking, and by 1995, we had discovered 146 causes of disasters, 146 things that have taken companies down. Well, it's impossible to deal with that, have a strategy for 146 alone. Think of permutations. You know, think of the Great Eastern Japanese earthquake. You've got a huge tsunami, an earthquake, and a nuclear meltdown. Nobody has a strategy to deal with that. So we really try to deal with the effects of it. And in this case, it takes place in one of the three major effects, not the facility and not really the operation, but in the technology. And so we start to look at how do we blend this into the business continuity model because cybersecurity doesn't have a response model. Cyber resilience will have it and resilience in effect, but it doesn't have it. So our job is to minimize the disruption to operations whenever we have a data breach um, and then to extend, expand our risk assessment process and the cyber assessment process to identify the weakness and move on from there. And then the last thing is to start to recover the operation. A um, long time ago, I explained to people that the simplest way to take people companies – out of using technology, is not to attack the the main processing system, but first to attack the backups. And so if you attack the backups and you destroy the backups, the first reaction, once you have a system failure, is to install the backups. Once you do that, you've ruined everything. And so we've seen strategies for that. We have what's... uh,
1: Hang on. That that doesn't... You you said that... Uh, one of the things with the IBM, the 196 days, mm-hmm. you know, backups don't usually go that far. They only go back a month. So it how doesn't matter. You, yeah, how it, would you it, restore backups when it, that problem is in your backup?
2: Ah, because the backups are connected to the system. All I have to do is put the malware into that process, and because you don't test the backups except maybe when you run a test and then it's truly not a full test, but you only run it when you have a problem, well, I've destroyed the backups, you just don't know it because you haven't used it. Mm-hmm. It's like taking the air out of your spare tire, you don't look at it every day. Yeah, yeah. The day you do look at it and it's flat, now you have a problem, and, I, and it's very similar to that. So we've come up with new ways of doing backups. Um, we have what are called isolation, where the data backup is to have secondary or tertiary copies of the backup storage target segmented and unreachable through the the public portions of the environment, I've totally separated them. We've even done something even more than that. We've done something called air gapping, where we create an air wall or an air gap um, in network security. And so it, it doesn't connect the backup systems to the primary systems. And so they're always disconnected. So it's harder to do that. So as you start to look at it, one of the things that ransomware does is it prevents you from using your backups. Because already they've been stored in your backup, so there's nothing to back back up to. Mm -hmm. And so you need to purchase the key. Uh, The good thing about ransomware is that they're usually honorable people. Once you pay them, they let you go back to work. And so that's it. But we're starting to look at this whole entire strategy on not only identification, which is difficult because we learned from the last incident. And so hackers are proactive and we tend to be reactive. The detection piece, which takes place outside because if we could have detected it, we probably would have prevented it. And then the response and recovery, how do businesses start to operate again? And so it's become a real co- complex model, but we've created this model for cyber resilience. And so now we're starting to build a model that says cyber is like all other incidents. We have to figure out how to keep the operation going. We have to try to figure out what will what we'll mitigate against losses. Um, and so it's become an interesting cat and mouse game, if you would. Mm-hmm, how do we start to be proactive? But I think to this credit, they've tried to create a standard that people can use, a framework if you would, probably a framework is a better term, a framework in which we can start to build this resilience model. And we will see how it's done. We, um, no commercial, but we built a course around it, but integrated business continuity. Because we think in the end, cyber is going to be like IT. When business, when we first started, IT was totally separated from the business. Continuity. We're seeing cyber the same way, but we think at the end of this, when we look at uh, resilience model and operation resilience, where there has to be an integration in the organizational reaction to it and the response Mm -hmm. the organization does.
1: And on that note, we've come to the end of our first segment. We are talking with Al Berman, the DRI Foundation president, and we will be right back.
0: disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune in to Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Bullock. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment and community for the aftermath emotionally, financially and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel you ready to hear from investors and get insight on different asset classes? Join host Troy Eckert for the program, Talk with the Texan, Money and Life. Troy works with high net worth investors and is ready to bring you the secrets he's learned in his 35 years of alternative investment experience, along with his guest experts. If you want value, you'll need to listen in live every Monday at 5 p.m. Eastern time and 2 p.m. Pacific time on the Voice America Business Channel. Small businesses are in trouble, and it didn't just start with COVID-19. From the recession several years ago to the revolution of e-commerce giants more recently, small businesses are getting hit hard and need to come back. Tune in to Business Buzz and Business Watch. It's two shows in one, hosted by Frank Hellring. We'll help your small business bounce back with best practices, guest experts, and resources that you can use to strengthen your small business. Listen Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific and 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business.
1: Tune in each week for the Labenthal Report with hosts Dominic Tavella and Michael Hartsman. The Labenthal Report keeps you in tune with market conditions, investment opportunities, and outlooks based on the stories and headlines to keep you in touch with your financial success. Are you picking the right financial path? Find out by listening to The Labenthal Report, live every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time and 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel.
0: You're listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fulick. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected.
1: Welcome back. Today we are talking with Al Berman. Al, lots of great information there about cybersecurity. Do you have any final thoughts on it before we move on to our next topic?
2: Yeah, I think just one thing, and we're starting to, organizations talk about risk transfer, the ability to transfer the risk from one place to another. And the vehicle that we most see is, is insurance. Um, even in cyber insurance world, there are now seven or eight different kinds of insurance, um, defense against uh, damage to data, um, copyright and IP defense costs, regulatory coverage, uh, remediation, Information assets, the restoration of data and systems and the cost involved in that, denial of service attacks, um, and and even ransomware. Um, the one piece of advice I would give you is the same thing the insurance company would say. Make sure you lawyers look at this. Um, insurance being a big factor in it. And just as a quick aside, one of the things that people have always looked for was a return on investment from business continuity. Um, and we found one recently, one very embarrassing to me personally, and then anecdotally, another one. But one of the things that I can show you truly is, is a return on investment is the ability to reduce insurance premiums, a hard cost in everybody's budget. Um, short anecdote is I was working as a consultant for an organization and I headed um, Marsh's, so it was the largest insurance broker. Um, business continuity practice. And I was walking by the CFO's office and he called me in and he said, Al, you know something about insurance. And I said, yeah, I guess I do. He said, well, we have a new insurance person and we're going to increase our business interruption insurance, the the insurance that covers you for loss of profits, not revenue and fixed, fixed costs like rent um, from 35 million to 50 million. And I said, well, why are you going to do that? And I'm a numbers person. I go, you, he says, well, we're a billion-dollar corporation. I said, you're a $4 billion corporation, but you're operating. Your profits are only $170 million, of which 70 is the operating process. So why would you insure $70 million with $50 million worth of insurance when we know you're only going to be down for three days? So if I were you, I would reduce it to $15 million, uh, save myself $700,000 and give me 10% of that. I learned a very valuable lesson that they do not give the answer before you negotiate the fee, but <laughs> it's really a hard sell. I'll, I'll give you, this is a true story. Uh, one of the largest financial institutions in the world just signed the $3 million uh, contract for somebody to look at this in, integration of insurance into business continuity. And, Um, and business continuity and downtime, and they're paying the consulting firm $3 million. Uh, The financial institution feels it'll save $100 million over the next 10 years. So if you really want it to be of vital importance to your organization, this is really a hard sell and a hard savings for your organization, Mm -hmm. which gets us back into the world of, you know, what is the regulatory environment going to look like and how are we going to deal with it? Do you want to break?
1: There's a lot of that. A lot of people are talking about, um, uh, especially when it comes to resilience, compliance now and regulation and the um, uh, FCA out of the Bank of England with their new standard regarding. Mm
2: -hmm. Which is is now PRA. They changed that acronym to make you to to screw with you colonists. That's all I can tell you. But it's now PRA. Yeah. Yeah. PRA is, is really interesting. Um, it it's really came out of Bank of England to try to integrate governance and business continuity and risk management in, into something that was really um, create a standard. And, and I think it's, it's going in the right direction. Um, it, it's calling for this integration that we talked about before. And uh, I think that we're going to see the use of that. But the the real issue that we face when we look at this is the amount of regulations. Um, You know, GDPR and the California regulations and the Colorado regulations. It will be, there are 37 states in the union that have their own cybersecurity requirements. It'll be 50 by the time we get to the next, probably by the time 2022 is over. And they all have to do with privacy and the reporting and um, what the requirements of corporations are. Um, And and I think that it's going to be difficult for organizations to deal with this. I I have to do a presentation, I think, next week um, to talk about how do you do that? What kind of structure do you need? What kind of corporate governance do you need? because what you find out is there almost nobody in the organization is responsible for this. I, I think the probably the exception to that may be healthcare organization where it falls under the chief compliance officer who's usually the general counsel. And so there's, there's a center there to talk about the regulatory requirements. But in most cases, you're caught up in FFIEC for the banks and the FDIC regulations and the HIPAA regulations and PCI for credit cards, several for the electric um, utility industry. Then you have national ones, GDPR. The United States doesn't have a national one and has probably will never have one. Uh, Australia created a new one, um, the Prudential Regulatory Authority, the one that is the Bank of England and the Operational Resilience Framework. Every country is coming up with them. Every state in Puerto Rico by the end of next year probably will have one. And so when you start to look at how do you comply with it, it's difficult for your organization. What is even worse, and it will lead us into the next segment, is the fact that now suppliers have to comply with it. So if you're a bank, every one of your suppliers has to comply with the FFIEC ones. If you're a healthcare organization, they have to comply with HIPAA. Um, If you're a utility, it's FERC and NERC. But the idea is that's expanding down the supply chain. And so now you're responsible to make sure that all of your vendors comply. It's not their responsibility, it's your responsibility. And so now you need a whole program, a whole governance to decide what the regulatory environment is going to be. Sorry.
1: Well, uh, let's move into supply chain. Let's move into that. I know you've got lots, and you said during our break, you know, one of your favorite subjects. So
2: <laughs> I was I being sarcastic, but I do I do have a closet full of toilet paper. I will tell you that. But, <laughs> we went right into, you know, we got a supply chain problem. And I, I think it's a multi-supply chain problem, and it it's different than what most people think it is. Um, you know, I, I think it started with um, – Suez Canal, and you get 380 some odd freighters sitting back there um, and backing them up for two weeks, and that starts the chain. Um, But I I think that when we look at the supply chain, we're looking at what's on the shelf, what's not on the shelf, and and how do we deal with that. Um, I think it's even worse than that. I think this is one, and it's probably a little bit of field from where we are, But to talk about the fact that this is a manpower, a personnel issue. There are, I think the last job opening number I saw was 10.4 million people in the United States. 10.4 million people have left their jobs and are looking for something else. Um, The record was, I think, last month where it was 11.1. But prior to that, I guess we got to go back to 2018, and it was just a little over 7 million. So there's this whole issue of supply chain. When you, when you talk about the things backing up at the ports and what do you do about, you know, 40-foot uh, containers, we don't have enough truckers. Um, so I think that the supply chain issue is being driven almost by the labor force. Um, it's not that we don't have them. it's They're sitting in the middle of all the ocean. Uh, the port of Los Angeles just went to a 24-hour-a-day operation. Mm-hmm. But every country is short of truck drivers, um, whether it's lorries in 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 England or truck drivers here or in Germany. People are leaving the trade, and it's uh, one of those unforeseen consequences. You know, We put in a lot of safety regulatory requirements for truckers, and it has inhibited their ability to make money. Uh, it's put them under constant regulation, and it's a dangerous occupation. Uh, it's not one that... That you see it. Um, one of the things that we've looked at is is also an aging population. Um, Two thirds of the people of this ten million people who are out looking for jobs um, are fifty five or older, and they're going to retire. I mean, the pandemic forced a lot of retirement. One is people saved money. It was interesting. I can tell you, I saved money. We didn't go on vacation, and we didn't go out to eat, and we didn't do the entertainment thing. So people save money, can afford to do it. The other thing is that they're realizing is, and again, I'm sorry about the numbers, but there are 75 people for every 100 job openings in the United States. And so people are sitting it out knowing that wage is going to increase. It has no choice. We don't have a choice. We see inflation. It'll be reflected in labor costs. So I think that they're holding out for more money. So the, the fixed goods, the goods that we're waiting to get them off their ships, are starting to um, be impacted by the lack of people in trucks to take them off those things. Um, you know, just four point four million people quit their jobs in September; they just walked off their jobs. Now that doesn't mean they're unemployed because those numbers are clearly going down. But it means that they're looking for other opportunities. And we're shifting people away from that portion of the labor force. Can't make enough money being a trucker. So we looked at businesses. Uh, We created a model a long time ago. And people would talk about um, service industry, those things that create paper or electronic paper and hospitals and things like that. And then we talked about manufacturing. Well, several years ago, we realized that transportation was a huge factor in dealing with that. And we didn't build a good model for how do we continue to get that? Um, So I think that we're looking at, give you some idea. We're looking at the import side of it. The export side of it is a whole other business. Um, The farmers in California, uh, the dairy farmers in specific, produce things like powdered milk and powdered butter that get shipped off to Asia, for example. Well, they can't find enough transport to get it out. So they do about fifty million tons, uh, fifty million pounds a month. They're down to about twenty million. And the interesting thing is, is that the ships are leaving without those products because the amount of money they make coming in. So a cont- container's used to be about two thousand dollars a piece. Those forty-foot huge containers. Yeah. yeah. Um, they're now between twenty and twenty-five thousand i.e. inflation, but there's just a huge demand on it. Going out of the country, going uh, from the United States to Asia, that's still $2,000, but they're leaving empty because they don't want to wait around for truck drivers to come and load this. Uh, you're seeing California farmers driving 1,000 miles to Vancouver to find the port that'll take their products. So we're going to see it on both sides of this, things that are produced by the United States and they're exported, which – the papers have not covered at all because they're covering the problem that I can't get toilet paper on, on my supermarket shelf because mm-hmm. that's what consumers look at. But from an economic point of view, that may be even more devastating. And so we, we, we've we reached the point where we've impacted the labor market to the, to the point where you can no longer get things that you need. You're seeing it. We can't get enough chips. I mean, Taiwan can't produce and chip enough chips for car manufacturers. And so we're seeing inflation. And at the same time, it's impacting production. And so somewhere along the line, the economic model has got to figure into this. Um, you know, we're worried about gas prices and, and and for a long time my friends of mine, we've been talking about, well, just get rid of, you know, use this strategic petroleum reserve. Now, we have a huge one that can drive prices down, and for some reason, there's a reluctance to do that. And I think that as we start to look at the supply chain, business continuity, people have to figure out how do you work with less. How do you work with less product coming into the market? It's for the most part, we have ignored the fact that supply chain is important in two aspects. One is clearly so that we can produce goods and services, but two, and I did this when I worked at an insurance company, product recall. When we have a problem with a product, we need to understand what that supply chain is so we can find out where the defect was. So it's a double-edged sword for us not being involved in it. Uh, Just as an aside, we we often talk about what skill set business continuity people should have. And I'm always amused by the fact that they say, well, you need those soft skills. You know, you need to be able to write and be able to speak. And it's always been my opinion, and clearly my career has gone that way. Is really a need to understand the business of the company you're working with. Mm -hmm. I mean, that becomes the most important thing, whether it's conversations with executives on how you can help them or to the point that you start to foresee problems like supply chain and have built that into your process. And if you haven't built it into your process, you can be rest assured almost nobody does because we look at things from a a processing point is we look at upstream modeling. We look at the fact that we know when we haven't gotten something. And that's a very short interval because it's from one step to the second step. As you start to build that model, you realize that somewhere along that is the full supply chain for the organization, and that needs to be integrated. And transportation has been one of those things that have been left out, and we're starting to see the consequences of that.
1: Well, that that leads me to a question then. With um, obviously going through the last year and a half of COVID, has these uh, existing supply chain uh, issues that for the most part, as you said, kind of been ignored or not really received the right amount of attention. Did COVID uh, trigger these supply chain issues or has it really just exasperated what was already there and brought it to the forefront much faster than let's say if COVID didn't happen, we'd be experiencing this maybe 10 years down the road instead?
2: Yeah, I don't think it'd be 10 years, in 2019, we realized that there was a shortage of truck drivers and the shortfall was somewhere between 30 and 40% that we thought would be over this decade. So we knew that that was starting to happen. COVID absolutely sped up the process. People were reluctant to leave the house. Um, People don't want to, you know, don't want to take the chance of being on the road and having to stop in places where they didn't know they were protected. And because of the way the job market is, they have options. Up until now, there weren't a lot of options for them. They can do local deliveries. Uh, you're seeing that Britain is one of those real cases where you know people who were driving petroleum trucks said, "I could drive a bakery truck and make the same amount of money because the wage the wage limits are, are probably the same." Uh, yeah, I think it's, it's a combination. We started to see this shortfall in employment, and all of a sudden in, in 2020 it blew up. People said, I'm not going to go out and risk my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that became a way of life. They started to look for a safer job, one where there was less contact, when there was less vulnerability. And because wages are now being driven up and truck drivers still get paid by the mile, you know, that disparity is, is shifting away from driving. And I think that's the economic consequence of this. But you're right. COVID absolutely exacerbated this.
1: We have less than three minutes left. Did you want to take two minutes with any final thoughts?
2: Yeah, I think we're, we're facing interesting times. And I'm sure and I've, I've heard people talk about the new normal. And I have no idea what that means. I know the new abnormal is going to be whatever whatever's around the corner. I think we've built. Uh, a real strong regimen for starting to address these problems. I think we have more trained and more skilled and more educated people being involved. Um, I think organizations are shifting. They're looking at things like operational resilience where they're going to amalgamate all of those processes that can cause disruption. So I think the future is bright. I think uh, strong organizations are adapting to it now. But I think it starts with the fact that the organization recognize there are problems and deal with those at the very top. New organizations, new governance, new policies and procedures, things that adapt to the reality of of today's work. Workers from home. um, I think you're right about the fact that people are not going to go back to their office. I've seen the good life. The children are back in school. I don't have to worry about that. I don't have to commute four hours a day. And when you look at what I think is an underemployment problem, when all these people, all these jobs going wanting, people are going to be able to use that as negotiating their terms of employment. And I think we will see a new model. Um, I think it, we will have to deal with the new reality. People are not going to go back to the office in January 1st. they They're just, We've heard that from too many people who said, no, nah, I don't want to do that. I can get another job. And I can get the same compensation and I don't have to commute and I don't have to live with dangers. I can be with my children. So we may have built a new employment model for the foreseeable future. And I don't know what that does to commercial real estate values, but it can't be good.
1: Yeah. And on that note, we've come to the end of our show. Al, thank you so much. I, I hardly interrupted you because uh, you, you were, you had so. I'm much on, to on a roll. <laughs> yeah, you were on a roll. You just had so much to share, and I didn't want to interrupt you. So thank you so much. You, you did share a lot of uh, thoughts with us today, and I really hope uh, listeners were paying attention to what, to what you had to say.
2: Well, thank you for allowing me to do that. I sort of feel good
1: about it. <laughs> oh, good. Well, and I'm glad to second appearance, and I'm sure at some point there will be a third. Thank you, sir. Enjoy your day. You too. Thank you very much. And everyone watching and listening, Stay prepared, everybody.
0: Thank you for joining us for Preparing for the Unexpected. Please tune in for another edition featuring your host, Alex Bullock, next Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We'll see you here next week.